You're listening to GNU World Order, episode 363. My name's Klaatu. This episode, we continue our stroll through the Slackware package set. We uh, most recently left off with HTOP in the AP software series, and uh, we'll, so we'll pick up with iSpell. You don't have to have Slackware installed to get something out of this. If these applications aren't installed on your system already, they, they often are. Like Many of these are, are squirreled away on your system and you just don't realize that they're there. Uh, then the ones that aren't there, you can probably find in your software repository of, of whatever distribution you're running. The first one that we're talking about today has a, I don't know, high to mid likelihood of already being installed. It is iSpell. It's a spell checker. I guess people generally think of it as, you know, kind of the obligatory, quote, spell checker for your terminal. Because it does kind of live in the terminal in in some modes, it's actually a very flexible application. So I'm going to I'll talk about the two ways that I know how uh, of it sort of being used on its own and then I'll I'll talk a little bit just briefly how I how I interface with it which is not through the terminal. So it'll be kind of interesting. Um it, it's not an you know this isn't sort of your system spell checker. This is an application dedicated to spell check. And that can cause some confusion or consternation sometimes because I think there's an illusion on on many operating systems or you know on a computer a lot of people think well this is a there's a system spell checker that manages all instances of spelling everywhere on my system and and I think that is the case in some operating systems I don't know I haven't looked into it deeply enough in in it, you know I haven't made a study of spell checking um but on Linux, there is no such thing that I'm aware of. There may be some application that does do that, um, but I, I have not yet seen that myself, nor have I looked into installing such a thing. There are spell checkers for application, and in in iSpell, in in the case of iSpell, it is a dedicated spell checker. That is what it does. It, spe- it checks spelling. Now you can hook into it in other applications, so you may see iSpell pop up elsewhere, but your iSpell spell checker is different than your, for instance, LibreOffice spell check, and so on. Now, the the reason I think this sometimes causes consternation is because one might think, well, there should be a user dictionary from which all spell checkers pull references, and that's an arguable thing to say. That is something that you might want to work toward. I don't know about formatting in all the different spell checkers. I don't know whether that aspiration is is feasible. I mean, I guess it's probably feasible even if there's some kind of, you need to write some kind of front end to translate your word list from one thing to another. I don't know how all of that would, would work. All I know is that iSpell is iSpell. It is one spell checker, potentially, of many different ones that you may have on your system. Whether that's good or bad, I'm not really prepared to, to say either way, because uh, frankly, I've yet to see a system that truly lets the user take ownership of their spell checking word list there there's i mean i i know that you know if you do have a global spell checking system that that somehow pervades all applications that's fine but even in that case even when something approximates that sort of global view i don't know that i am convinced that users feel like they sort of own that word list and know where it exists and how to add words to it or sometimes more importantly how to remove words from it and so on so i just i haven't quite seen people take that much control over over the thing checking their spelling. And, and I'm not even sure that people care that much. I, I think that there's a subset of users who do care, and those are the people writing things that are subject to 
to critique of, of some sort, like grading papers or, or, or you know, making a good impression at, at, at your job or your prospective job. But I, I don't know that I've seen really people think, okay, well, this is my word list and I'm going to carry that around in my home directory for the rest of my life. I mean, heck, I don't even know if I've seen that many people who are even aware that their user data exists in a, in a, in a single sort of definable place. You know, a lot of people don't even understand that their user data is within their home directory. You know, the concept of a home directory or a user directory, whatever they, it would be called on a different OS, that doesn't seem to be all that pervasive. So asking people to take ownership and to care about their word list, I think, is would, would be a, a weirdly tall order. So all of that is to say, I'm just not sure how big of a deal spell checking is to most people and certainly judging judging from uh things that i read day in and day out uh it doesn't seem like a lot of people are really all that concerned all the time about how their their spell checkers work or whether they use a spell checker at all so in order for this to use to 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 order for us to see ispell you'll need a demo file so I'm just going to create a quick one here, demo.txt, and I'm going to type in how, um, no, you are listening to GNU World Order, but I'm going to spell listening incorrectly with an I instead of an E, so L-I-S-T-I-N-I instead of E-N-I. And then I'll say, um, this is a show, but I'll type T-H are both capital rather than just a capital T. This is a show about Linux, and I'm going to leave that lowercase, and open source, all one word, technology. And we'll just see how that goes. Okay, so now I've got this demo file. I'm, I'm quickly going to copy it. I'll just cat demo.txt into demo.fresh. There, now I have a fresh copy whenever I need. So I'll, I'll type in ispell space demo.txt. That takes over my screen in, in a little terminal UI. TUI, as some people phrase it, and at the top of the screen is the is the word that's being analyzed right now, and the first one that it caught was listening, the file that it is from, and then there's um, the workspace underneath that, which is the sentence from which the word comes, so you are listening to GNU World Order, got it, and then a listing of potential replacements. So in this case, there is but one, zero, and it is listening, spelled with an E instead of an I. And then at the bottom of the screen is my menu. So um, it's a little bit cryptic, I guess. Uh, it says brackets SP, close bracket. I, I honestly don't know what that, that is. Um, and then and then you, and then it says number. So if I type in a number, for instance, zero, then it would accept listening as the correct spelling for that, for that word. Other options include R for replace. So if I if I if it doesn't give me the correct option or 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 whatever, then I can just replace. I, it's a manual override, right? Replace it with anything. Maybe I don't even want to use the word listening. Maybe I want to use the word hearing instead. There's also accept, which is telling it. And I feel like this is a very odd. This is an odd term for this action, but accept means to essentially ignore the word from now on. So it's sort of it's telling it to accept this word as the correct spelling, which which is different from insert. Insert with an I, uh, so if I hit I, this that would insert listening into my user dictionary. But accept just, it, it's basically skip. Skip this and all future occurrences of this word during this session. I don't know why they chose accept. I, I feel like that's an odd term for that. There's L to look it up. U for uncap. I have no idea what uncap means. Uncap is, um, it means accept the word and add an uncapitalized, actually all lowercase version, 
to the private dictionary. Okay, I've learned something now. Uh, and then there's quit and exit. So that's th those are our options for for this. Okay, so if I'm I'm just gonna uh, type in zero for this one because that would be the correct spelling. And the next word that it catches is this with capital T H. Is. So that's, you know, mostly right, that that's a, the, the spelling's right, the capitalization is wrong. And so it's suggesting zero, his, one, thin, two, thins, three, this. Weird. Weird that this came so low in that list, but whatever. So three, I hit three, and it automatically replaces it and moves it to the next word, which is Linux, with a lowercase l. It's suggesting zero Linus, or Linus, Linus, and then one Linux with a capital L. That's, that's the correct option. And then once again, open source technology. I think canonically, the correct adjective term for open source kind of as a brand is open space source. Technically speaking, it should be open dash source, which it also offers. But when you're talking about open source technology, the, the sort of the unquote brand or the quote unquote brand of open source is just open space source. That's that's the whole file. And so it drops me back at my bash prompt. That's kind of the expected workflow, at least from the, the the man page, that's what I get. That's kind of what what's expected. That's the the built-in correct canonical iSpell experience. But there's more. The other mode of iSpell is kind of a really handy instant lookup dictionary type thing. So uh, if you just type in iSpell at on your at your terminal, then you get you're you're in interactive mode, and it prompts you for a word. So if I do, for instance, open source all one word, it says, how about open source, with a space, comma, open dash source. And so then, presumably, I could type in open space source, and it says that it's okay. Or I could do open dash source, okay. So it's happy with those. Uh, let's do mnemonic, and it says okay. Uh, I didn't actually think I would spell it correctly. Uh, let's do it incorrectly. M-E-M-O-N-I-C. says it's not found. Oh, I did N-E-N-O-M-I-C. That's a little bit too far off, I guess. I meant to do M-E-M-O-M-I-C, mnemonic. Still says not found. So this is problematic, right? Because um, I'm, I'm really close. M-E-M-O-N-I-C. Oh, there it goes. Okay, I guess I... Oh, yeah, I see. I did too many M's the first time. Wow, that's a tough word to misspell, apparently. Uh, so mnemonic, M-N-E-M-O-N-I-C, misspelled as mnemonic, M-E-M-O-N-I-C, correctly finds mnemonic, M-N-E-M-O-N-I-C, and and gives me the options. It also gives me the option of demonic. That's a fun one. Um, but I, I think... I think what I'm trying to get at here is that I feel like it's um, maybe a little bit not forgiving enough, or maybe it doesn't take wild enough guesses sometimes for my liking. And I don't know, you know, I, I don't know the right, I, I don't know the, the 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 fuzz factor really that that is correct. Like, what what is the right amount that you would want it to? to take wild guesses. That's got to be tough to program. So I, I get why that would not work, but I guess I would prefer it to just throw out wild ideas and guesses at what I might mean, especially with something like, for instance, Naman. I feel like all iterations of my misspelling should have should have triggered something because it was... I don't know. To me, that seems likely enough. Even if even if it could, if it had some search mode where it was just like, okay, okay, here are all here. Here's a couple of words, maybe even starting with that letter, with the rest of the, just the vowels in the, in that same order. Maybe that would have produced something that that I could have that, that that I could sort of that would trigger me to think, oh, well, what I really meant was this one, or or let me try something a little bit different. 
I guess I'm trying to say that I prefer some some guesses than just a not found. Like I I, I feel like in a spell checker, I I think I would rather never see the words not found as a result. I would want I, I want something. But anyway, that's just my that's my opinion. And uh, to get out of I spell interactive mode, control D gets you back to your prompt. And now really quickly, I'll just talk about the way that I normally um, use iSpell, which is from Emacs. And when I'm using Emacs, I I use iSpell as my spell checker. And in fact, I I use um, a spell for iSpell. So the built-in spell checker of Emacs is iSpell. But what people have told me, and I'm not I have not actually followed through and and researched this myself, but People have told me in the past that A spell deals with non-English documents better than I spell does. Like I said, I haven't actually followed up on that. That is purely hearsay. I I took it at I, I took them at their word when they told me that. I don't even remember who told me that. And so that's what I use. I use A spell. Either way, the um, the the interface is the same, and you you can open up a file in, and I guess I'll open up this demo file, except I'm gonna open up the fresh one with all the misspellings in it, and I'm gonna. So normally what I do is like if I if there's a word that I that I feel is off, then I just put my cursor over the word and do Alt Shift Dollar Sign, and for whatever reason that's mapped to I spell dash word I think it is, and I could I get a little menu up at the top of all the suggestions. So once again this is zero listening. Now for the record it does have more more results than I spell. Um, you'll remember that I spell gave me one suggestion which was listening with an e. Correct. This one also gives me listening as zero, but then it, it gives me listing, glistening, destining. Is that a real word? Destining? Uh, lusting, staining, stinging, stoning, and so on. So I'll just back out of that for a moment. Now, if I wanted to do the whole document, which I do, you know, at the end of the document generally, I just press Alt X and then I just invoke it manually with the words I spell dash buffer, and that that'll go through the whole thing line by line, word by word. And, and give me all the suggested correct spelling. And this this one has found all of the same words and has given me all the correct suggestion, actually, for the record, as the zeroth choice, which is not always the case. I'm just starting to notice now that the difference between a spell and I spell, that's just kind of interesting to me. But um, yeah, so that's, it, it found all the same words, it gave me the, the suggestion, and and all the options are the same. So, for instance, you can accept, you can insert, you can replace, you can just choose the number. You know, all that stuff is is pretty much the same as the iSpell interface. It's just you're you're viewing it through Emacs rather than going out to your terminal to do it as a dedicated action. And that's generally how I interface with iSpell, except it's not really iSpell, it's Aspell. But Aspell doesn't come installed by um, uh, automatically on Slackware, I don't think, at least. Uh, ha ha does it? I don't know. Maybe we've already covered it, or maybe we'll cover it in the future, but I, I'm pretty sure that's one that I had to install myself as sort of part of my part of my Emacs doll. And and there's a bunch of different packages within Aspell for the different languages, too. Um, iSpell, I'm not, I'm not really sure about. I mean, I'm sure there must be for iSpell localization and all, but uh, it's, I don't know. It's, um, it's a handy little spell-checking application, whether you use iSpell in, in, as a command, whether you use it in interactive mode, or whether it or something similar in some application, some other application like Emacs, it is a handy little spell-checking routine 
that you can invoke and make sure that you actually are spelling things correctly, which is important. Um, I, I love to think sort of that, that spelling, as long as the intent comes across, it's good enough. But at the same time, I think sometimes, you know, it is important to do a spell check because it's technology and we have that ability. So why not just be that much more precise in how we communicate? Uh, lately, I think communication, the, the, we've demonstrated successfully in this um, in the, in this world that communication can can be suboptimal if you don't really give it the extra attention. And I think spell checking sometimes is one way to just really make sure that everyone's kind of talking the same language and we're all sort of thinking about the words that we're choosing and and we're choosing them for what they mean rather than for what we think they mean and so on. So spell checking, I don't know. I think it's a good thing. I do. I don't think it's I don't think it's the worst thing in the world if you misspell something. I really don't. I'm just saying because there's technology to make sure that you don't misspell stuff. I think it's worth doing. Okay, so that was I spell. There's it's a bigger topic than what we've just than what I've just given it. I mean, it, we I could go on about it because I mean, what about exclusions? What about words that you don't want spell checked? How do you deal with that? Do you just add it to your user dictionary? Do you just do it and you just accept it every session? Is there some kind of um, word list separate from your user dictionary? How about words in brackets, like tags in XML or in HTML and so on? This is all, I mean, it's a, it's a big, you know, actually a big topic that you don't really think about all the time, but eventually you kind of do have to get around to it because you realize that, yeah, sometimes um, words are are more complex in technical in a technical setting than than one might think my what i normally do and and uh there are a couple of different modes in emacs that help i spell or a spell uh ignore things in bracket or in tags in um what are they called greater than less than symbols whatever those things are angle bracket brackets um so so that's useful and then uh, otherwise especially in in sort of the tech space, there's just so many wonky and weird words that we invent, so I just end up adding them all to my, my user dictionary. And there's a bunch of weird words um, in in a bunch of RPG things, too, tabletop uh, games that, that, that pop up on my system a lot that, that I just add to my user dictionary. Who cares? I'll just add everything, and, and in the one or two times that I'm actually not using it the way that I used it in some other context... That's fine, I'll deal with it later. And that's iSpell for you. It's a very useful tool, you should use it, honestly. I mean, you shouldn't have to worry about your own spelling, that's what computers are for, it's just that we do have to invoke it. I, I think there is that interesting problem of, of, you know, in a lot of settings, it, it gets invoked for us. You know, in, in LibreOffice, for instance, if you under, if you un, if you spell something un, incorrectly, it'll get underlined with that big red jagged line. Um, and, and that doesn't necessarily happen elsewhere, so you do have to invoke this yourself. In Emacs, there are a couple of modes that will invoke it sort of on the fly. It's called fly spell. So you could, you could start using that if you're, if you're someone who types in not LibreOffice, such as myself, but uh, other times you just have to remember to, to make that part of your 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 workflow. I have I have made git hooks for iSpell. I have I have done uh, make files that call iSpell. You know, is it is something that yes, you can forget. You should not forget. Okay, that's iSpell really. Now let's talk about ITS tool. ITS is uh, the internationalization tool set or something like that. I should look that up. Internationalization tag set. Sorry by W3C. I'll link to the schema in the show notes. It is, it, it's 
it's quite clever, actually. So the problem is, if you look at, at, at a document a lot of times, you, you wouldn't know necessarily what needs to be translated and what doesn't be translated. For instance, something that's, that's quite uh, important, like a, a color name, like a, you know, well, here's in their example, Navajo white. That's what the, the background color is, Navajo white of this imaginary application. Uh, and if, if you're looking through that and you're translating it into a local language, you may or may not know that Navajo white needs to be translated or, or not. Does it need to be, is it a word that that needs translation, or is it a special word that does not, that, that in fact must not be translated, or else things will break? Well, ITS is a tag set that helps programmers specify things that do and do not need to be translated. So, for instance, instead of having, um, string, you know, tag string, close tag, Navajo white, close string tag, um, then or, yeah, sorry, so it was string with the angle brackets and then Navajo white and then close string tag. Instead of having that, you'd have string, the tag, and then space ITS colon translate equals quote no, unquote, close that, and then Navajo white close the tag. And and that would be a way for your translation team to know not to touch that value. That's not to be translated. It's something that's special and apart from their normal workflow. Now that's all XML. PO stands for, I think, portable object, and a POT file, a portable object template file, is this is a thing that you could hand out to your translators and they'd be able to look at that and 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 work off of it and sort of complete fill in the blanks really is what it would do. So, and this is all by the way more or less hearsay. I don't know. I don't do this in real life myself. So, I'm 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 speaking highly theoretically and uh or or not theoretically, but I mean I'm yeah, I'm summing it up as best I know how. Uh there may be some details here that I'm that I'm not super clear on and I'll try to to be clear about what I'm not clear on, and one of those is the the use of a PO file. I know that PO uh, very often is generated when compiling something, and you know it, it's in a it's in a language or a, a region that isn't the same as the region that the programmer assumed you were in, and so the PO file gets generated, or or maybe the PO file gets generated because you have several different languages active on your system, and so you're going to need those PO files for, for you know, in, in case you switch over to, to French all of a sudden from English or whatever. So the the PO file and the POT file, I don't I don't actually use those myself, so I'm I'm not. 100% sure on sort of the workflow around them. But um, nevertheless, ITS tool can look at an XML file written with the ITS schema in mind and then tran and then formulate a PO template file .pot file for for your translation team. So the the simple syntax here is ITS tool ITS.xml for instance, that's what I called it. You call it example.xml whatever. I called it ITS.xml, and then dash O for output, or, or even dash dash out, and uh, we'll just call it out.pot, out.pot, and then if I look at this file in, for instance, emacs, uh, emacs out.pot, I see that I've got um, some header header information here at the top, so it's telling me the it tells me the creation date of this pot file, and then the po revision date. I can fill that in myself. Last translator, it prompts me or it sort of clues me in on you know put your full name here and your email address here. So it's it's got language team, put your language here, and so on. So it's got it's it's got everything sort of that you would expect. You know all that sort of boilerplate stuff at the top. And then as you scroll through, you, you see 
the different things that that need translating. So for instance, here's the ITS tool path variables slash string. Uh, it is in ITS.xml line 13. Message ID is quote corporate policy. Message string quote quote. So that's an empty 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 um, empty string. So if I go back over to my XML file, I see that in the variables in 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 a section called homepage in art in, in no, not in arguments. Under arguments in variable, there is a string its translate equals no policy, all capital policy. So that notice I didn't see in my translation document. There is no policy to trans. But the next line is string corporate policy. And there's nothing saying not to translate that. There's no ITS attribute here telling me not to translate that. And so that's why it pops up in, in my POT file. Message ID is corporate policy, so then I would I would put whatever translation I wanted to, to place here in the quotation mark and I would save that file and I would keep going through and there's you know it'll it'll list everything that's that has not been marked not translatable and and the translator would then would fill those in and that's kind of as far as I know that's more or less the workflow as I say I don't do this in real life so there might be some subtleties I'm missing out on but that's um, that's sort of the the rough idea there are a couple of different flags for this there's um, dash dash ITS to load uh, a specific ITS rule I don't know anything about that there's dash dash no dash built-ins, and that's that is not to apply the built-in ITS rule that ships with ITS tool. So I, I I'm I'm assuming here between those two those two options that a new schema might come out sometime, but that doesn't mean you have to to update ITS tool. You simply point it to the new scheme or whatever they call it in the ITS world. I mean I'm, I'm assuming it's a schema, but maybe there's some other subtleties there that I'm aware of. Dash dash strict. strict tells it to exit with an error uh, when there is broken XML. Dash dash load dash DDT loads an external DDT for XML stuff. Um, and then there's keep entities and param. So you can specify specific parameters, name and value pair. And that's that's the tool. That's ITS tool. It's for internationalization slash localization. It's very important. It's just not a tool that I actually use in real life. So I don't have a whole lot to say about it. But it's always great. I mean, this is exactly, this is the kind of markup language, or th this is the advantage of markup languages. You know, this is why we have things like XML, something that's that is admittedly quite verbose, quite ugly, sometimes hard to parse if you're not used to looking at it all the time, but but boy is it just so flexible. It really is. It's just so nice. And I'm I'm a big fan of XML. I know a lot of people dislike it, and I'm with you. Like I I get it. I totally get it. Sometimes XML can be exceedingly frustrating, but I think ultimately the design of XML is kind of brilliant. It's just so predictable, so rigid and strict, and it really, really makes, it gives a lot of confidence to the person generating the XML that whomever is going to, whoever is going to process it on the other side is going to be able to get it into whatever format they want. And, and that's such a, a great sense of security for me, uh, and I imagine for many, many others, because, you know, there are lots of other languages out there that are that are less strict, but then the parsing of, of that of that language, or of that 
of that schema, of that system of, of writing is a lot harder. It becomes really, really, well, not, you know what? It's not that it's harder. That's a dangerous sort of precedence to set that, that XML parsing is easy because it's not. I mean, there's all kinds of weird stuff you have to do. There's XPath, there's XSL, there's all kinds of weird things that you might have to get involved with to parse this stuff. That's not necessarily fun or easy. However, it is reliable. It's reliable and predictable, and that's what you need sometimes. You don't have to guess at the parsing. You don't have to think, now, when this person did three space indent here, did they mean for it to be this kind of block, or did they just put three spaces there? And if they put accidentally six spaces, so two sets of three spaces, are they still, are they trying to be in the same block? Are they starting a new sub-block? And is that sub-block a child of the the original one, or is it meant to be a different block, its own parent, but further indented? You know, you, it's just it's it's endless, and and trying to parse that is it it's it isn't that it's difficult to parse; it's that it's ultimately impossible to parse computationally, programmatically. You can't do it because the intent just isn't there. There's no final word on what the intent was. Whereas XML, uh, if the intent is not clear, it does not validate and it does not process and you go fix it. That's a beautiful system. Now granted, that might be, you know, that might just be, well, maybe we just need to turn quirks mode off on other languages. You know, like if we're, if we're not clear on how markdown is meant to be parsed, then, or, or HTML when we don't close a tag, but we parse it anyway, like maybe, maybe the right answer is to stop activating quirks mode and, and stop guessing and just tell the user, hey, this isn't right, you need to fix it, and then I'll parse. But XML, I don't know, there's, there's a certain, with that verbosity and that, that level of explicit intent, I just, I, I tend to think that it's um, you, you. If you write XML, you don't you don't feel like you're going to revisit it in three or five or ten years and think, well, now I have to rewrite this because nothing parses XML or, or you know, th- th- I don't know what this means now. It's like, no, you know exactly what it means, and if you have to untangle it, then you can because it's it's it contains its own little map of what everything is supposed to, and that's a, a wonderful, wonderful. Um, so yeah, I'm a fan of XML by extension. I guess ITS tool is cool. That that was that's what got me started on that that passionate support of XML. It is now time for passionate support of coffee. Go get yourself a cup. We'll meet back here and continue on our journey. up is Jed. This is the, um, this for me is the exciting stuff because they're, it's text editors and shells. Not, not Jed actually, but, um, so Jed is a text editor, but it, it, it necessarily demands a discussion of Slang, which also gets into uh, an interactive shell for Slang, which, um, is cool and, and weird. And then there's, um, after Jed, there's going to be, like, Joe, and then there'll be Jove, and then there'll be Corn, the Corn Shell. So, very exciting thing coming up, but 
I think um, I think now now that we have coffee, now that we have Jed, we'll just kind of think this will probably be the last half of the show. So if you're not up for a lot of discussion about text editing, then um, just enjoy your coffee. So okay, so Jed, it is um, it is. Let's see, what's this guy's name? John John E. Davis's text editor. It's that's what that's what Jed stands for. John E. Davis, I guess, or maybe it's. Yeah, no, I think it's Jed. Um, and Jed is um, meant to be, well, a text editor first and foremost, I guess. It says that it emulates Emacs, EDT, WordStar, and Brief editors. I, I've only heard of one of those, and it is the Emacs one. No, actually, sorry, I've heard of WordStar, but I have no experience with it. I don't know what it is. I've just, I know people have, I've, I've heard that mentioned at one point. So Emacs is the emulator that I use, and it is the default emulator. That's the... That's the one that, by default, in the Jed RC file that ships with Jed, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But um, so for me, this this was th- this is just a handy little lightweight Emacs clone that that's useful to have because lightweight Emacs clones are useful. Um, there there are actually quite a few of them out there, but the the ones that ship with Slackware uh, are the ones that I I guess I the ones that I'm most familiar with. Maybe arguably I don't know. There's a micro Emacs out there, and and I've been using that on a server for quite some time. So yeah, they're they're very they're useful little little things, and it is kind of funny because you do realize just how reductionist you can be. Um, you know, for an Emacs clone, nine nine requirements out of ten are can I can I invoke things with Control X and then some other control character? Like that's that's that dominates your list of requirements. You know, no matter how much you sit around and tell yourself, oh, I like Emacs because it's got this this one cool feature and this other cool feature and it's got this mode and that mode. At the end of the day, at least for those quick vim-like actions that you that you do on a server or, or or just in the terminal and because you can't be bothered and your 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 root and and so you don't want to you can't easily fire up a GUI application without giving yourself extra permissions or something so you just want something that's lightweight easy to compile has the correct Emacs key binding and and that's really that's it that's that's what you want out of a lightweight Emacs clone and that's what Jed provides really but the similarities i guess really technically stop there and and keep in mind that the Emacs emulation is but an emulation it is simply we'll use this set of of um, definitions for the keyboard shortcuts that's that's mostly what you get from your Emacs uh, emulation mode so Jed really possibly i mean i i, I want I don't want to speak for Jed or Mr. Davis, but I think in in a way Jed is a um, a, sh- a proof of concept, or, or maybe that's almost maybe that's not quite enough. Maybe it's more like a, a showcase for this um, scripting language that Johnny e. Davis created back in 1992 called Slang or Slang. Maybe I don't know how he says it, but um, Slang. Is this um, this library that that helps people create interactive applications? Um, apparently, it is C-like. It is object-oriented, uh, or rather, it has support for object-oriented um, uh, model. And um, I guess in in a, in many ways, it's meant sort of as a scientific. Um, scientific computing sort of front end and there is an slang shell called slsh which also does ship with slackware so we will be talking about it um and um it's 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 a nice little robust library so this is kind of slang in action and uh, as as proof of concepts go i i think it's actually pretty good 
So if you launch Jed, J-E-D, then you get a scratch buffer. That's familiar to any Emacs user. It says that, hey, this isn't going to be saved. Um, but luckily, it, it prompts you down at the bottom of the window that kind of, it doesn't necessarily force you to do what it's prompting you to do. You can you can switch back up to your up to your scratch buffer, uh, but it, it does prompt you for a file name, as if to say, to get started using this application, you should really create a file. And that's, um, that is an, a critique sometimes of Emacs, is that, that initial scratch buffer, because it's there, and it's so tantalizingly simple, and you can just start typing, and then you wait three minutes, and you forget that it's just a scratch buffer. And so you type and type and type, and then you, getting that it's a scratch buffer, maybe, you hit Control x Control c and you close Emacs, and everything you've typed goes away, because the scratch buffer does not prompt you to save it when you're closing. That It's a scratch buffer. It, it Its sole purpose is to be a scratch buffer. If you exit, it pretends like the scratch buffer doesn't exist, doesn't care. And so, really, that initial touching of the file is so important, and um, it is, it's a tough, it's a, a difficult little push and pull for me, even, because I, I feel like best practice is to force the user to make a file for their own good. And yet, the convenience of that scratch buffer, I have to admit, I do it all the time. So what, what's the right answer? I don't know. Uh, maybe a bunch of temp files in a designated location on your, on your hard drive to which Scratch always save, and you just go back and, um, and and clear that out on a on a periodic basis every you know 30 days or something. That actually that's not a bad idea. I should write an Emacs um, plugin to to implement that. Either way, Jed does have a scratch buffer, but it defaults to placing you at the bottom of the window in this interfile name buffer, and I'm just going to call it jed.txt. So now we're in a blank, uh, in an empty an empty file, and it loads and it tells me that it's that it has loaded from user share jed lib text mode dot el uh, sorry el uh, dot sl. See, I'm already thinking I'm in Emacs because I'm I'm providing I'm I'm giving things the default uh, ellipse uh, file extension. Okay, so the cool thing about jed, I guess, is that well, one of the cool things is that for me it is very much it, it looks like Emacs, and because the key bindings are uh, familiar. Most of them. It, it feels like Emacs. But uh, one nice thing is that up in the upper left-hand corner, it says F10 key and then points to the window, or the, to the menu. So if I hit F10, then it highlights the first menu selection, which is a file, and I can hit return, and it opens the menu, and then it shows me all the different options. So open, control X, control F. Close, nothing for that. Save, control X, control S. Save as, control X, control W, and so on. Uh, I can scroll over one with the right arrow and it takes me to the edit menu and it shows me all the different options there. Search, buffers, windows, system help, and so on. So it, it kind of tells you how to get into that menu, which I always thought was kind of nice. doesn't exactly tell you how to get out of it, but um, escape works. I think control G probably worked. Yes, it does. So either control G or escape, which I feel, well, if you're Emacs, certainly control G is intuitive. Escape, I think that's somewhat intuitive for many users. So there you go. That's, that's Jed. It's, it's a, it's a file it's a, it's a text editor. It takes after Emacs in lots of different ways. And the similarities 
aren't just in look feel it really a lot of the functionality i mean i don't know where functionality starts and feel ends but like whatever you think of like jed kind of like if you're if you're in your emacs mode then jed kind of complies um it it often surprises me just how much how how many similarities there are so for instance control x control f that'll open up a file i'm going to open up the demo.fresh file it 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 detects that there was an autosave file so that's kind of amazing. Uh, I'm not going to load that, but the fact that it knew that is kind of cool. And I mean, to be clear, that's an autosave from Emacs. So it's not an autosave from Jed. I wasn't using Jed earlier. I was using Emacs to type that demo file. So the fact that Jed could could recognize that, hey, there's a, a file with a with some characters after it that, that's an autosave of this one, that's really neat. So if I go over to you are listening, oh, that's a problem. Alt-F kind of doesn't work because it jumps up to the menu, but I'm sure there's a way to um, turn that off. Uh, you are listening, so then if I do Alt Shift dollar sign, then it spell checks just as I would have expected, and I can hit zero to complete that word and go over to other other words and so on. So all the keyboard shortcuts that I'm expecting are working more or less. Like I say, the um, Alt F jumping up to the file menu a little bit problematic, but not uncommon. I mean, I've had terminals that that also have the same problem. Uh, control S to save, Control W to save as, Control C to quit, and so on. So um, yeah, all the basic functionality is there definitely. But buffer management is also there. So if I'm in if I'm in one buffer, I can at Control X O to go to another buffer, Control X two to split the buff buffer horizontally, or I guess technically what is that? Yeah, it's a horizontal split. Meaning that they're stacked, that they go, they go. Uh, their one is on top of the other, one is above the other, and so on. So there's a lot of functionality here that you wouldn't necessarily expect a, a mere emulated, you know, sort of not even a clone, just an emulation of something. You wouldn't expect it to necessarily um, work that well, and yet it does. Now it doesn't have a vertical split that I know of. It doesn't have a. Um, no, actually it does. It has a shell. So if I do Alt X shell, I think it was. Yep, it invokes a shell written, I, I guess, in Slang. So that's kind of neat. Um, it has well, I mean, all of the, all of the, um, all of the functions, of course, are accessible by the Alt by Alt X, which is quite nice because that's again what I would expect in Emacs. Anything that's not bound to a key, I would expect to be able to access through Alt X or Meta X tech. Um, okay, so that's that's pretty cool to to play around with and and it is quite small i want to i want to emphasize that let's look at um i mean this isn't totally accurate but let's just do a a disk a du on jed that's 312 kilobytes for jed now there's admittedly there's a bunch of slang um extensions or you know add-ons that are hanging out that 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 doesn't account for so that's not it's not perfectly um, accurate to say that it's a mere 312k but it, it is pretty simple and if you do an ldd on jed you get um you, you don't get a whole lot of 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 things that it relies on it, it needs lib slang uh and it needs in curses and then other than that it, it kind of just needs the, the you know the, the normal sort of normal things that you would find on a linux system libc obviously libdl libm libgpm uh and libvdso i guess it's possible you might not have some of those things like gpm but i'll bet that's an optional thing that you could do at, at compile time anyway i've not compiled jed myself i just use it straight out of slackware but um 
others other little Emacs clones I have compiled myself, and they they generally tend to be pretty simple. I mean, that's kind of part of the design, part of the I think the reason that they exist. Really, it's not just the design. It's just a lot of times people want the experience without all the bloat. And Emacs is super bloated. I mean, it's a huge application. Like if you if you just grab the sources for Emacs and compile it, it will it will take you all day. I mean, if you didn't do your homework and look at all the dependencies, because there it depends on so much stuff by default. Like it it wants lib poplar, it wants lib svg, it it wants png, it just wants everything. Like all kinds of crazy stuff. And and the fact that you can grab an Emacs, you know, sort of again, just kind of 80% of the way there, Emac experience. Uh, and it's funny, like I said, how skewed that is. 80% of Emacs is not just keyboard shortcuts and uh, buffer management. And yet that's like in practice, when if you're not living in that application and you just need it for that quick edit, the, then the 80% is exactly that. It's just the keyboard commands, really. So that's Jed. Now let's take a really quick look at Jed's um, JedRC file because that's pretty interesting to look at. So you can put in your init file a .jedrc file in your uh, in your home directory, but but by default Jed ships with one in slash user slash share slash Jed slash lib slash Jed .rc. So let's have a look at that really quick, and um, it's 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 heavily commented. Which is useful, um, but if you scroll through, you'll you'll kind of get an, an idea of of how all of this works. For instance, eval file seems to be a function to 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 load in a a um, a thing to load in a file, uh, an extension, a plugin, whatever we're calling an s uh, an slang uh, extension. So, for instance, if we have parentheses parentheses equals eval file parentheses quote emacs close quote close parentheses semicolon that ensures that the Emacs key bindings are loaded. Now you could also do that same call for, for instance, EDT for EDT emulation. Again, I don't actually know what that is. Um, IDE for a Borland IDE uh, emulation mode. I Again, I don't I've heard of Borland, but I don't know I didn't know that they had an IDE. Um, brief, WordStar, and CUA. So CUA, I forget what that stands for, but CUA is um, a mode in Emacs to enable uh, control C to copy, control V to paste, control X to cut when in in context because um, obviously control X to cut would interfere heavily with the default key bindings of control X control F or control X control C whatever so um, if you have something selected or marked then when you do control X it cuts and that's obviously quite useful for people who aren't used to Emacs or, or who are used to Emacs but but thinks it's stupid that that Emacs hasn't accounted for uh, modern key bindings but I mean it has CUA mode you turn that on and you're good to go okay uh, another another thing that that I've already observed, Alt-F, or Escape-F, or Meta-F, whatever, uh, to move forward by a word rather than, for instance, a character. Well, in Jed, that um, that triggers the menu function, and that's not what we want. I, I'd prefer to keep menu as just F10. Well, the call for that, or the function for that, rather, is enable underscore menu underscore keys, parentheses, parentheses, semicolon. Now, if we comment that out here, the next time we run Jed, we would find that our Alt-F action no longer uh, gets us into the menu. I'd have to, we, we would have to hit F10 to get in. And this is kind of the way that you would customize Jed, really, is you would, you'd, you'd latch on to a function or a hook that performs 
some action that you appreciate, and, and maybe you would assign it to a key binding, or, or maybe you would have it auto-load upon st uh, starting Jed, and so on. You can get a feel for everything that's written into Jed by going to um, F10 for the menu, pressing H for help, or just a right arrow over to help. Describe function is the menu entry. Uh, it takes you down to the little mini buffer at the bottom of the window, and you can hit tab several times until you get a list in the bottom half of your Jed window of all available functions. That's, I mean, maybe there's some other way to get this, but I mean, that's the, the quick and dirty, and the only reason, the, the, the only way I know how to get it is, is the way I've just demonstrated. Well, I mean, I guess you could go look at the source code too, but these are all the hooks that are built in, or functions that are built into, into Jed. I mean, it's quite, quite a lot. There, there are quite a lot of them, and they're, from the most basic to, to, you know, quite complex, really. Um, and, and all of them, of course, can be assigned to any number of, of key bindings or, or other functions. You know, you, you, you can put this stuff into your init file and have all kinds of things happen for you. So that's, that's good to know about. Um, I mean, I'll, just a couple of samples go down. Go down one, go left, go left one, go right go right um see what else create well dured that's a that's an important one that's the directory view of uh, of a file system within the jed window which is um a lot like well emacs dured uh and then there's for instance here's the shell shell command uh, shell underscore command so yeah lots and lots and lots of different available function there and then like i say uh there are also hooks that have been created already for you um which frequently can be invoked through a key binding and if you go to the help menu and you describe key bindings then you'll find a lot of them defined there so for instance beg underscore of underscore line it's probably the beginning of a line right so if i open up a sample file and i move my cursor to the end of the line with control e i've just invoked eol underscore command it's not a very consistent naming scheme is it uh and then if i hit control a then it's beg of line so now if i just hit alt x or meta x or escape x and then type in EOL underscore CMD, then my cursor moves to the end of the line. So that's not the most efficient way to do something, but it is it is a way to do a thing to test out a, a hook and put it to a key binding, for instance, if you want to. Um, that's kind of that's sort of basic hackery of Emacs, that that sort of thing. That's that's the way you know that you're when you're just figuring out the the simple things within Emacs. That's kind of that's at least for me that was the workflow. You know, find out what functions are getting called when I do some magical key combination and then go to my init file and redefine that or or override it with something else or or amend it or or whatever and and I could see you doing the same thing with Jed now Jed is written in slang as I've said and so if you wanted to really hack on Jed uh, and and customize it for yourself then definitely just if you look into slang start programming your own functions then you could load them into Jed and and redefine how it behaves so it is a very hackable editor just like Emacs it's just instead of learning Lisp you'd be learning or, or elisp i guess uh you'd be learning slang and slang uh is a little bit more c-like than than certainly lisp like uh so it, it'll have a different feel to it you'll probably be a little bit more on your own <laughs> i don't know how much of a scene there is for slang hacking and jed hacking there might be a a, a a huge one i don't know but 
but certainly with Emacs, you can generally expect to see people already having done what you think you want to much less get help on something. Whereas Slang, I'm not sure that you'll, you might have to find the people that, uh, I'm not saying they don't exist, I'm just saying they're, I don't think it's going to be as readily available as something as big as, but that's Jed, it's a great little application, it is, it, it's one of the, it's one of my many fallbacks. And by that, I mean, I'm not a big fan of Vim or Vi um, for two reasons. One, because I I use a Dvorak keyboard and primarily a Dvorak keyboard. I guess I technically could use a QWERTY keyboard somewhere, but but generally I just kind of default to the Dvorak keyboard. And so Vi or Vim, whatever, doesn't really work that well with that. I, I guess I could probably spend time redefining keys and so on. But Emacs is big. It's bloated. It's heavy. It's got way too many functionalities in it for that sort of s- simple, quick edit. And indeed, back before I switched to Dvorak, and I was very much, a, you know, sometimes Vim, sometimes Emacs type person, I it was very very common, like very common, to edit my .emacs file in Vim because number one, you didn't want to have to launch Emacs to edit your .emacs file, but also because if you're editing your .emacs file, it might be because something's broken. So launching Emacs and then dealing with the eternal questions of you know question after question, oh this is broken, are you sure you want to continue or whatever, that gets to be a pain. So getting out of the Emacs ecosystem and into something else in order to edit your Emacs environment is useful. So I would do that very frequently. And I I think I've heard other people kind of laugh about doing the same thing themselves. So I don't think that was uncommon. Uh, And now that I do use Dvorak and kind of feel like Vim just isn't something I ever launch anymore, it kind of dawned on me that I didn't have to have Vim on my system. I could just remove it. And so I did. I removed Vim entirely and and, and regularly install either Jed or Joe, or Micro Emacs, but generally for this purpose, it's either Joe or Jed for my Vim replacement. And it works like a charm, because that that way I, I get this nice little tiny minimal environment. I can type into it using keyboard commands that I'm used to, and kind of feel like that, that get that experience of Emacs without having to actually launch the entirety of so take a look at Jed if you're looking for a lightweight version of Emacs or if you're just looking for a nice little terminal editor that isn't Emacs or Vim or 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 uh, Nano that was the other one Nano because um, yeah Jed's pretty nice it really is it's quite nice um, and if you're really curious about those niche fringe programming languages Slang could be something fun to spend a weekend uh, toying around with for sure I think that's everything we've made um, some progress we got through all the I's and we've made progress into the J's so next next week we'll do Joe and Jove and who knows maybe we'll get to corn shell you never know we'll, we'll see thanks for listening I'll talk to you next time Listening to the GNU World Order Ogcast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Ogcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at 
member.fsf, as in freesoftwarefoundation.org. And of course you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. your hands on the radio right now.